timely topics, helpful insights. This is Teaching Grounds. Each episode will explore the inner workings of healthcare, life, and leadership to help you navigate the waters ahead. Wrong NOS. Wrong not otherwise specified. Well, that is the topic of today's Teaching Grounds. I'm your host, Curtis Merritt, and today we are going to talk about the patient that just looks wrong. It's that phenomenon where you can't quite articulate what you're seeing, but something in your senses, whether sight or smell or hearing, just seems off. And it's that point where you're asking yourself, do I bother the doctor? And so I thought it'd be helpful if we went through some of the points I see when I walk in a room. And I think that very same thing, something is wrong. And I can't quite articulate what it is, but I know that something is not quite right. So with that being said, where do you start? Where do you begin when you walk in a room and something is just not right? This patient is wrong in OS. And believe it or not, that is the place I like to start. It's the appreciation that something's wrong. And sometimes what's most helpful for me is just learning to quiet myself. And oftentimes what I will do is I will stand at the doorway. And if the patient's in the ICU or something, and maybe on a ventilator or unconscious for some reason or another, I'll just stand there and I'll watch and I'll listen. And I'll try to just let my mind... Go a little bit blank, if you will. It sounds kind of silly, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to calm down my internal monologue so that I can start to appreciate the subtle signs that may be coming in. Those signs may be breathing. It may be the sound of the machines we're using. There are a ton of different variables. But the point is that you begin to recognize that something is off and then start putting words to it. So that sounds pretty simplistic and when you're busy and you've got six or eight patients and the day has been a mess these things just seem to compound the difficulty in sort of arriving at a diagnosis or even recognizing that something is off and then calling the right people to get get the person some help so i thought it would be helpful um, because we often do case studies in medicine i thought it'd be helpful to run through three patients they're completely made up But each one of them sort of demonstrates one of the wrong NOSs you may encounter. So the first patient is Miss Breeze. Miss Breeze is going to be our shortness of breath patient. And Miss Breeze sometimes, when she comes into the hospital, has a number of different things that she complains about. She's got a lot of pain medicines and a lot of issues, uh, chronic back pain, um, oftentimes requiring the BiPAP, but doesn't want to wear it. And so already, as you can see, there's some predisposition in our judgment that her complaints or her condition may not be taken as seriously. And so one of the rules that I think is pretty helpful is that every patient, every case stands on its own legs. And what I mean by that is every case, regardless of the complaints of the past history or the past knowledge of the patient, needs to stand on on its own legs, on its own weight um, of the evidence that's present. So let's say we admit her to the hospital and 
she's got lots of complaints. She has lots of active medical issues. And in our observation, maybe they're somewhat disproportional to the gravity of her complaints. And we go in the room and this is what we see. Miss Breeze, who is normally very boisterous, is quiet. Well, that is an abnormal thing for Miss Breeze. So already we've had a change in condition. And so let's say we met you know, in our minds, we walk into the room and we see Miss Breeze and she's being very, very quiet. Number one, we're kind of happy for that. Maybe a little bit of peace and quiet around the halls, but that's abnormal for her. And so we look, we calm ourselves down, we give ourselves just a second to kind of observe, use our observation skills, our hearing, sight, sound, um, you know, going up to her and just kind of watching how, um, how is her work of breathing? How is her respiratory cycle? Is there ease in inspiration? Is there ease in expiration? Um, when she breathes in, is there abdominal breathing? Like, is she using her abdomen to sort of force air in and out? Is it becoming sort of automatistic? Is it looking more and more like a machine? Like, she's maybe not in control, and we may be dealing with some sort of acidemia or other, you know, hypercarbia, you know, high, high CO2 on the blood gas. So using our observation skills, we can start to figure out that yeah, maybe something's up with her. We know her, we've seen her before, but now she's different. And that's the big point realizing difference because we all know on these sort of patients it can be very tough to take them seriously and they drain you they drain your emotional cisterns they make it tough to want to come back to work sometimes and we've all been there but it's important that we find a way to sort of quiet those judgments and again let the case stand on its own merits let it stand on its own legs use the evidence to sort of pull and leverage you in the right direction. So with Miss Breeze, things to work watch out for in a patient who may be having a respiratory complaint are those things we just talked about. Nasal flaring, abdominal breathing, ease of the respiratory cycle, when they inhale, when they exhale. Does it sound okay? One of the things I get called for a lot is, you know, the patient has been here, um, they don't have a history of heart failure, but they're sounding wet. Well, crackles in the respiratory system generally are auscultatable, but they're not as often um, audible. And what I mean by that is when you have spit in your airways, when you have phlegm in your tubes, uh, that's usually very audible even to the outside. And when you put your stethoscope on them, it's extremely audible because what you have is large boluses of phlegm that sort of flop back and forth in the airways and occlude them and um, open it up and back and forth. Crackles, on the other hand, are usually a finer sound. It's usually a very thin water uh, from heart failure or whatever. Um, at their extreme, sort of sounds like Velcro, which is what ILD, the interstitial lung disease, can sound like. But phlegm in the airways is sort of a different condition. That says more aspiration or maybe failure to clear secretions. In which case, well, that may not be a Lasix treatment because it's very hard to Lasix something out of the bronchioles. Um, the alveoli are a little different because they're so close to the capillaries. But you don't Lasix somebody who's got phlegm in their tubes. You give them breathing treatments, acapella, incentive spirometry. Um, put them on the rattle vest if they need it. Uh, even upwards into bronchoscopy. So when you have Miss Breeze and you're listening to her breath sounds or maybe she has audible breath sounds, 
it's important to remember that there's a difference between crackles and ronchi, and that's spit in the tubes. So sometimes it's helpful to just give a few seconds of observation. Do I hear the breath sounds um, you know, from the outside without my stethoscope? Somewhere in there, you got to throw wheezing. Wheezing is usually pretty audible. And we have two kinds of wheezing in medicine. We have the monophonic wheezing, and we have a polyphonic wheezing. Monophonic, mono meaning one, that usually is an upper airway obstruction like epiglottitis or laryngitis or something like that, a vocal cord spasm. It's a little different with polyphonic wheezes. That's smaller airways. That's asthma often. Uh, COPD can certainly have the same thing because a lot of it all sort of runs together. It's an inflammatory process causing narrowing of the airways. And as air passes that, it lets out a little wheeze sound. So with Miss Breeze, with a dyspneic patient, those are some terms and some key ideas to keep in mind as you're observing them. And like I said, it's helpful if you can start articulating um, what sort of things you're seeing. Because when I pick up the phone and call you back or, you know, you call us, I'm going to be asking those things. What, what do they sound like? You know, before I appear at bedside, I, I, the descriptive terms are pretty helpful to give us, you know, an idea of where we're headed. So that's Miss Breeze. She's going to be your wrong NOS respiratory patient. She's going to be the one where her breathing is just increased. And remember, I think there's still the uh, breathing lecture on um, teaching grounds if you go on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can check that out. Remember, there's three components to breathing. There's oxygenation, there's ventilation, which is the movement of carbon dioxide and sort of air mass, as well as control of your um, acidity levels. Um, and then there's work of breathing. Sometimes the oxygen's fine. Sometimes carbon dioxide and acidity are fine. But then the work of breathing has picked up for whatever reason. So always interpret your um, oxygenation in that broader sense that it's just one piece of the puzzle there. So the next patient uh, in our list here of the wrong NOS is going to be Miss Ames. So Miss Ames is our altered mental status patient. And she is going to be the one that breathing may or may not be a component because oftentimes an altered mental status patient will have some sort of disruption of their breathing cycle, whether it's fast, shallow, rapid, or deep and rhythmic, or you know, there's a lot of variations that can sort of manifest itself. And it may not be a primary respiratory problem. It may be a central problem, a cognitive problem, or a sedation problem. So, Miss Ames, what will we look for when we see her? Well, when you walk in the room, she's going to be different. She'll often have been fine that earlier uh, in the day, and now she's not. Maybe she's jumping out of bed, and maybe she's crawling and saying there's children or ticks on the wall or things like that. And we often see that in our elderly population as time goes by um, and they're in the hospital days and nights sort of flip on themselves. And your circadian rhythm is pretty dependent on those things. It's dependent on um, a good sort of cycle of breakfast, lunch, dinner, bedtime, and repeat. And when that gets disrupted, especially being sick, um, you can get a lot of dis a lot of sort of weird manifestations. Oftentimes you'll be called and it's the person they think they're somewhere else. Um, and you'll see that with a lot of the in-hospital deliriums. So it may be a hyperactive Miss Ames where she's crawling out of bed, trying to punch the nurse, um, you know, a whole different slew of things. Or it may be the hypoactive Miss Ames, in which case she's just not responding. She's very sedate. 
And you always have to look at medicines in this context. You have to assume that, in fact, my assumption at least, is that the medicines were the culprit until they really get proved that they're not. So if they're on narcotics for their um, you know, bowel obstruction or if they're on uh, benzodiazepines for a history of anxiety, then, yeah, that may be the culprit. We need to hold those. Now, often with the hypomanic delirium, if they're protecting their airway and they're hemodynamically stable, of course, they need to be watched closely, but they may not need to go to the ICU and they may not need to get intubated. Intubation certainly is for oxygenation issues because we can control a lot on the machine, for ventilation issues when, you know, maybe they're hypercapnic, meaning they have too much CO2 and their acidity level has increased, in which case your pH drops because it's the inverse of your CO2 and your pH scale. So when your CO2, just like when you uh, put carbon dioxide in water, makes carbonic acid, so when you don't blow off CO2, your pH will drop and you'll become more acidic. So it may be in this hypoactive delirium that you know they're not able to take big, deep breaths. And remember, again from that ventilation lecture, you have to have a, a minute ventilation that will move enough carbon dioxide. Somewhere you know, in that four to seven liter range, people will need to blow off the carbon dioxide their body makes. Without that, it builds up and your pH drops, in which case your medulla or your brainstem tries to kick in a sort of automatistic breathing. And that's what we talked about earlier, watching for the rhythmic automatistic breathing, which is a sign that something's up. You know, something, some automatic system has kicked in to try and compensate for the body not doing it itself. So Miss Ames, sort of to bifurcate her or to take her two directions, you might have a hyperactive delirium, you might have a hypoactive delirium. Hyperactives, sundowning, when they're trying to crawl out of bed and punch you and all sorts of fun things that make your nights fairly rough. Uh, hypoactives, where you're worried about her and they're just, she's not moving like she was, she's not waking up for me. Again, look for medicines, look for those things that can be the easy culprits. Sometimes your seizure medicines. Keppra is kind of notorious for this, giving you a uh, depressed mental state. But you also, in these uh, instances where you have Miss Ames, you have to think about true primary neuro dysfunctions, whether that could be seizures, and they're not always grand malls. You won't always see them shaking. They can have silent seizures, in which case open her eyes. You know, peel back the lids a little bit and see if she's got a nystagmus or you know, her eyes are sort of oscillating back and forth. It may be a sign that something's going on. Um, oftentimes my ones that are just a hypoactive delirium, you know, they may just kind of fight you a little bit when you try to open their eyes. In which case, you know, that may be some reassurance depending on the case. Again, these are all, all these cases are meant to sort of arm you with the right words so that when you do call the docs, um, we're able to, you're able to articulate the case in a, in a way that sort of makes sense for everybody. So um, don't forget about strokes. You know, strokes can be a focal weakness. Strokes can be a, a central, you know, sort of dissociation or a, a lack of mentation sort of fits in that hypoactive delirium, but it should always be top on your list. And does everyone who's altered need a CAT scan? You know, you got to leave that up to your docs because it's based on the clinical uh, scenario, but it's at least something that you should have in the back of your mind as you look at people because, you know, strokes have medicines. We have TPA. We can lice them if it meets true criteria, then people can often have rescue efforts made. And and that can be the difference between a really debilitating, debilitating stroke and one that's you know recoverable. So, 
keep that in mind. Miss Ames, again, remember, she might be hyperactive, she might be hypoactive, and each one sort of tilts you one way or another. Now, with the hyperactive deliriums, what do we do about them? Well, often if we can, we try to redirect them. We try to um, avoid nocturnal stimuli. We try to avoid waking them up. We try to get them back on that circadian rhythm as best we can. If there's an electrolyte or acidity problem or something else which may be contributing, we try to resolve that through whatever means we may need to. But sometimes we can, and sometimes they pose a danger to themselves or others, and there's a lot of different sort of um, algorithms out there that can help you delineate what you need to do. But oftentimes we'll use some sort of calming agent, some sort of sedative, um, and these may be the antipsychotics, low dose, um, halperidol, geodon. Um, we try to avoid, especially in the elderly, the benzodiazepines unless they take them chronically. There's some evidence that there's some really long-term effects on things like memory and dementia. As we learn more and more, we might find that they're actually not the best medicines to be giving patients in the hospital, um, even in the setting of a, a short-course delirium. They can certainly make that delirium worse, which is why we don't use them in the ICU as much anymore. Although back in the day, Versed fentanyl was all we ever did, and that Versed, people would go on that, and they would not wake up for days sometimes. Um, again, because we're still kind of learning what all these drugs do and, and how they affect people long-term. So, so bear that in mind. And again, you always want to try redirection, try the you know decreasing stimuli, get the TV off, maybe make sure they eat a good dinner, um, make sure during the day that they're up and about, help them sort of reorganize their circadian rhythm. These are all things to bear in mind as you um, go forward. But again, as with all things on teaching grounds, make sure that you talk to the docs and, um, and figure out what orders and what directions they want to go. So the last one uh, in this case is Miss Lemons. And Miss Lemons is the one that's getting sour on us. So what is it to become sour? Well, it's that look when you walk in the room and they just don't look right. They look underperfused, and sometimes even just recognizing that is a bit of a challenge because you know people don't always tell you when they're not perfusing like they should. But you check the vitals, and maybe it's low normal, where usually they're hypertensive. Okay, well, a big drop in blood pressure may be actually an underperfused state for someone. Maybe you look at them and you see, yeah, they're just kind of diaphoretic. They're a little sweaty. Uh, maybe they're not waking up like they should. Maybe that rhythmic breathing came back. And I use the term sour, and of course, Miss Lemon's name is based on that. I use the term sour because sometimes it's tough to figure out that somebody's building up acidity, that their lactic is rising. It's just, it's sort of more of a gestalt, more of a look, to where the whole body seems to be in a sort of sick state, like the water in the, in the um, water tower is just not quite clean enough, like something's bad going on. And oftentimes we'll find, you know, they were fighting an occult bacteremia. In fact, often than not, when people come in with a UTI and, and high fevers, very often you'll find that they've got a, a gram-negative E. coli or Klebsiella or something in their bloodstream. And as a result, they're releasing toxins and they get that sweaty, just sort of sour look to them um, where they just look unwell. And sometimes it's kind of hard to articulate. It's best, you know, when you see this in real life that you're like, okay, now I understand. Um, but those are some things that you may experience. They just, they feel tired. They're just drawn out. 
And in the back of your mind, you need to ask yourself, are they turning sour? Do, they, do we need to check a lactate or repeat some chemistries or check a white count? A lot of different directions to go, and there's a lot of different causes. And again, this is where uh, having the doctors come to bedside and try to figure out what's going on is pretty helpful. So, we Miss Breeze, just to review, Miss Breeze is our um, is our lady who's here in the hospital and has a primary respiratory wrong NOS. So it may be hypercapnia, it may be hypoxia, it may be work of breathing. We may need to move some more carbon dioxide, like with a BiPAP. May need to add some oxygen, like with higher flow nasal cannula or venti mask or um, non rebreather, um, or it may be work of breathing, in which case BiPAP or intubation, because uh, those are about the only ways that we can actually take away the work. We have to mechanical ventilation in and of itself, especially for Miss Breeze. It's something that you just there's not a lot of options beyond the actual shoving of air in and out. So we have to. We have to use the machines we got. That's going to be BiPAP or a ventilator. If we're working breathing this stuff, that you know they just can't tolerate it. Um, Miss Ames, our altered mental status. Remember, it can be hyperactive. It can be hypoactive. And helping delineate that, um, oftentimes you can ask them questions. You can sort of figure out if they're going to try to climb out of bed. And, and sometimes it oscillates. You can have a mixed hypo and hyperactive. You can see both symptoms where they'll have bursts of hyperactivity, which makes your shift especially fun. And then they have bursts of complete hypoactive, and you wonder if they need to go on a ventilator. And sometimes it can be very frustrating, and especially for families too. When they look at their loved one, they see that they're not themselves. What's wrong? What are you guys doing to them is often the question we get. In which case, we have to explain that you know when you're in the hospital for a prolonged period of time, you're outside your normal rhythm, and you can develop delirium. That's one of the reasons why you know quiet nights, you know good meals if they can tolerate it, a good rhythm, good sleep-wake cycle is so important. And then of course, Miss Lemons, that sour patient, trying to figure out why they look ill. Uh, if you've ever seen someone and you look at them. They have that sort of puppy dog look to their eyes where you ever seen a puppy that's, um, you know, wanting something from you. Sometimes their sides of their eyebrows will dip down and they furrow the front of their brow. They just look sick. Kids do this, you know, unconsciously, and you can tell a kid doesn't feel very well. Uh, grown adults do it too. I've seen it time and time again. So these are all sort of those subtle signs that you need to try to at least be picking up on. And it, if you go back and look at the big picture of everything that's going on here, what we're trying to do is develop a thin slice. And a thin slice is this term they came up with in uh, psychology where people are able to, in a very short period of time, develop a gestalt, you know, a, a feeling on the matter. So when we walk in rooms and we see somebody's diaphoretic, okay, that's wrong. Okay, your thin slice is now working pretty well. You've noticed something is wrong. Now, can you add some vocabulary to it? Can you add some adjectives that tell you what's going on? Are they disheveled? Are they, um, you know, diaphoretic? Are they work of breathing's too high? Are they nasal flaring? Even on the ventilator in the ICU, if I walk in and I see somebody that's nasal flaring on the ventilator, my first inclination is to check a blood gas because nasal flaring is air hunger. And sometimes and very often you may find sort of this occult acidemia. They've developed you know, too much acid in their blood for one reason or another. Maybe they've got too much normal saline and they've developed a hyperchloremic acidosis where 
saline, I don't know if you know, is a pH of about 5.5. And so when you give fluids, you can actually make their pH drop. So those are things to um, you know, sort of bear in mind. And as you look back, sometimes it's helpful to start from the top, start from the you know, basically the face, the eyes, the work of breathing, nasal flaring, um, you know, are they pursing their lips? Uh, so often I've had people, you know, throughout my time in the hospitals will say, oh, they're in there snoring. My first inclination when I hear that somebody is snoring in the hospital is, are they agonal? <laughs> Do, you know, if they're calling me because they can't wake them up, snoring's usually not the reason. It's usually because they're agonal. And luckily that's pretty rare, but you know, it's at least something to bear in mind that it can be a little misleading when you go in the room and you hear that sort of <laughs> and that can sound all the world like snoring, but you know, sometimes it's just that rhythmic, automatistic brainstem breathing where it's trying to overcome um, you know, something that is you know, fairly difficult for the body to do in its own own right. So so that is all the th- those were at least many of the thin slices that I use at bedside. Again, it starts with calming yourself down, taking a moment, observing. If they're not in da- imminent danger, if you've got a few minutes to sit there and try to come up with the right algorithm, then it's helpful to just allow their physiology to talk to you for a minute and let your senses get a handle of what's going on. And then when you make your phone calls, when you call the docs, when you try to get the... Um, machine moving towards getting them feeling better and maybe you may have some better adjectives to describe what you're seeing and that can often mean the difference between uh, you know getting timely care and delayed care so you guys play such an important role wanted to cover uh, just a few of the thin slices and a few of the subtle signs of medicine if you have questions you can certainly uh, send us an email you can email me curtis at teachinggrounds.com And we'd be happy to entertain topics that you guys are interested in. And once again, thank you for joining us on Teaching Grounds. We'll see you next time. Teaching Grounds and the Teaching Grounds podcast are a production of Teaching Grounds Incorporated. All information presented is for educational purposes only and should not be used to guide medical therapy.